Welcome back, everyone. I have, feel like I haven't been here for ages because we had Thanksgiving break, then it was gone, and Stephen uh, preached a couple weeks ago, so it's good to be back uh, here on a snowy December Eve. Uh, we've been working through this semester, the majority of this semester, through the book of First Peter, and simply by God's grace, as we've been going through this, that some of the passages that we have been looking at have corresponded perfectly with some of the present events going on in our culture. Like three weeks ago, uh, we talked about the gospel and politics a mere two days after the last election. And here we sit today uh, on the precipice of Christmas break, and we're going to talk about marriage. You see, the reason Valentine's Day is after Christmas is because Oftentimes, the relationships are spring, of spring are forged in the crucible of Christmas. From mistletoe to holiday movies, we can't escape the theme of romance. For it's December snow, which begs two smitten lovers to stride side by side, suited with scarfs and gloves. It's the lights of the Christmas tree that cast inviting shades, beckoning us to come and snuggle in its subtle ambiance. The poetic pole of our songs sung sultry and low on the radio, which tug at the memories we have of our beloved. And then there's all of you single people who have to watch the rest of us enjoy this season. Regardless of where you, whether you find yourself in a relationship or on your own this Christmas, this season, and even just that, that hope we talked about, it frames something important about our perspective because we come face to face with our own hopes. We hope to be home for the holidays. We hope to be with family for our holidays. We hope to get what we really want for Christmas. We hope to get the break from school. We hope to make some money this break. We hope to potentially find, whether on our own or with somebody, person acceptance or love. And tonight, we gather together to look at a passage written by the Apostle Peter for husbands and wives. And since the majority of you in here are not husbands, nor are you wives, um, I want to look at this through the lens of just that, hope. What are the hopes we have for our relationships? What are the hopes we have for our future? Now, Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 7 that marriage is not the only thing which satisfies our hope. In fact, both singleness and marriage, Paul in that same chapter says, each of them are a gift. The single person should live a single life to the glory of God, and the married people should live married lives to the glory of God. So the preface of this message is that while marriage is a good and wonderful gift, marriage is not what makes us Christian. Christians do not have to be married to find what true religion means, nor do Christians have to be married to find true satisfaction. That's because what the Bible tells us is that marriage nor singleness gives us intrinsic value or joy in and of itself. It's only the gospel of Jesus Christ which brings meaning and merit to whatever it is we're living, be it single or married. But with that said, that's my preface. We're talking about marriage today because that's where we're at in the book of 1 Peter. And as you sit here tonight with your hopes, hopes about romance, hopes about relationships, hopes about marriage, and more. This is what I want us to think about tonight as we look at 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. I want you to think, and what we're going to see is that the hope of our relationships must be accompanied by the hope of the gospel. The hope of our relationships must be accompanied by the hope of the gospel. And if we wish to truly be satisfied in our hope, 
We must find our hope fully justified, fully made concrete at the cross of Jesus Christ because the most certain thing we have in this world is what Jesus has already done for us by dying for our sins. So let's pray and we'll look at this together. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your goodness just in the changing of seasons and breaks and holidays that we get to enjoy um, but Lord, we pray that for this next uh, 40 minutes that you would uh, allow our hearts to focus on your word, that, you would be recept- or that we would be receptive um, to the gospel, that for those in here who have worshiped Christ for many years and followed Jesus, that we would see him with greater uh, passion and with greater glory and we would desire to follow him. And Lord, we pray uh, in here if there are those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus or never believed in him, that in looking at marriage and in looking at husbands and wives, we see a clearer picture of what Christ has done for us and we can hear and respond to the good news of the gospel. We thank you that you have not made us as humans um, to live isolated individual lives, but you have made us cultural creatures capable of having emotions and affections, and those are not uh, in, in opposition to who you are, but rather they point us to who you are. So we love you, Lord. We pray for this evening. Um, pray this in your name. Amen. So, quick pointer on how you should listen to uh, this sermon tonight. Is this passage, as I mentioned, is broken up into two parts. A part to uh, wives and a part to husbands. And it's important to note that. It's not written to boyfriends and girlfriends or even to men and to women. This isn't saying boyfriends must do what husbands do here and wives must do what wives do here. Or all women must do what the wives do here and all men must do what the men do here. What is it meant to be applied here? is meant to be applied to a man and a woman in marriage. So secondly, men, as you listen to the majority of this text, there are some passages that give the husband a lot of time and some passages that give the women a lot of time. Tonight we have one that gives the wife a lot of time and the husband a very small amount of time. So as we listen to the larger portion addressed to wives, it's not tune out and wait for the buzzwords that you're listening for. When we are listening to um, the opposite sex portion, I want you to think about, is this what I'm looking for? Is this what I'm hoping for? Are these the uh, characteristics that I want? Does the dream of this text match the dream of my heart? And same thing for you ladies in here. It's giving you a cheat sheet on what we should be looking for if we want true joy in our relationship. So with those two prefaces said, I want to dive into our passage um, to wives. And as we read this, I want to look at two hopes in this passage. The hope of effectiveness and the hope of acceptance. So let's read 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, in the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. 
So I don't want to spend a lot of time here um, on the gender roles in this passage, but I want to quickly say that these roles and relationships we see here, uh, the role that we'll see a little on as uh, we, we see women, woman as helper or as being subject to and husband as head or as leader, those are actually things which preserve love. And this is important to talk about because it's entirely countercultural to what's going on right now. Culture wants to flatten and homogenize this bland blend of same love. Culture makes it to where if we want to love, we must find something like us, similar to us, and they must be exactly the same as us, and then we'll find true love. But that flattens something which is meant to be diverse and wonderful and different and empowering, and that's what gospel love is. The gospel doesn't force us to be one specific type of person, but the gospel brings us true love so that we can love others who are different than us. And we can do so in the equality of salvation. So roles define relationships. They don't destroy them. Women can talk about submitting to their husbands without being tied to a wall somewhere and having to obey everything that's spoken to them. Men can lead their wives without being responsible for everything that happens to them and becoming domineering. God gives us these things so that we could find joy and the abuses of those are bad, but to do those rightly brings true love and true joy to those who are around. So with that being said, the first hope we want to look at tonight is the hope to be effective. The hope to be effective, the hope to get something done, the hope to achieve something. And we see this all the time on social media. And, and the tricky and dangerous thing about social media is that you get to craft the perception of yourself, right? You control the narrative about what people see and what they think. And one of the narratives we like to create, I, I love, so my learning how to use Photoshop and becoming relevant on the internet uh, merged perfectly here at the University of Montana. And I remember creating a picture, a very realistic picture that made it look like I was dunking a basketball when my vertical is that of a small shrew. Um, and so I was able to craft this picture of who I wanted to be and some people bought it and thought I was amazing at what I did, but that had nothing to do with the reality of our hearts. And so we can craft that you can dunk or that you're successful or you've achieved much. And one narrative we like to put upon us is that of effectiveness. I always wrestle, like sometimes when I am uh, doing sermon prep and I've got like this rustic wooden table under me and like a Bible open and my computer with like the Greek languages on it and pages of notes. I just want to take a picture and like post it. So people are like, look at how effective and smart Tyler's being. Look at all the stuff he's doing with his mind. But even more so than that, I realize this when it comes to cooking because I hate to cook. I would rather not eat than be forced to do anything in the kitchen than it would be for me to go and cook something. But sometimes I have to cook because I have children that need to be fed. And I know that sometimes I need to love my wife by doing things I don't like to do. But here's what happens is in those moments when Sarah's at work, uh, this just happened two nights ago and I had to, actually Becca shredded the chicken for me. So she took half of the task away from me. But I had to reduce and pour in a slurry. That's a thing. A slurry. Have you guys heard of that? So I poured in a slurry, don't know what it is, into a boiling pot and whisked it and it looked like the food network. And all I wanted to do was take a picture and put it on and be like, made dinner for my wife. What's up? It's like I hated everything I was doing and I didn't want to do it, but I wanted people to know like, dang, Tyler's a good husband. Tyler's doing what it takes to go the extra mile. He's slurrying and whisking and he's nailing it. 
And perhaps you've seen this on Facebook, right? Or Instagram or Twitter. Ladies posting images or messaging about how they just did this amazing, wonderful, cute, fantastic thing for their boyfriend or for their kids or for their husband. And my wife would even confirm that there's always this temptation to fight for that title of being effective. Am I doing all that's required of a girlfriend? Am I doing all that's required of a wife or of a mom? But more importantly, am I doing it better than you? And we have this race where we tend to post things that try to one-up people, whether we see it or not. Like someone took a cute picture in front of a Christmas tree. I'm going to do that too. And we start this process of competition. And honestly, I can't imagine the weight that this places on women. I know some guys who are into Pinterest and Instagram too, and that's great. But there's this place in the interweb called Pinterest. And I don't know how anyone interacts with this petty world when there's the Pinterest world, right? You get all of these picture-perfect pins of the most wonderful, cute things you could ever do, and that's all you see. You don't see the reality of the Pinterest fails. You don't see the burden of how many countless hours it took that person to set that up. All you see is perfection. And we live in a culture where we're surrounded by this. It becomes part of what's expected of us. And you have this two-front war as a woman. You have this war of meeting the demands of what women think of you, of what Pinterest says you should do. But then you also have this war of meeting what the cultural demands of what men place on you. And you're constantly surrounded by this competition. Am I pretty enough? Do I craft enough? Do I wear enough? Am I doing what I need to do? Am I being effective at who I am? Am I contributing? But before we answer any of those questions, we need to first answer the question of what is truly effective? What's the merit of effectiveness? Because we can be efficient in a lot of things. We can schedule our lives in such a way where we efficiently get many things done, but are those things that we're getting done really effective? Do they affect things? Do they change things? Do they contribute in ways which are meaningful? But let's look back at 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2, and look at the effectiveness at play here. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So the measure of effectiveness that Peter is giving here in this text, this is not all that's required, but this is what Peter is talking about here. The measure of effectiveness for the Christian wife is holy living inside of marriage. Respectful and obedient behavior. Why? That why is important. Does God just want people to be well-behaved and that's the only thing he cares about? No. God does things for our good. So what is the benefit for you women in here, as you look at this text, what is the benefit of being a woman of this text? And right now, I want to look at the result of it. We're going to get to the benefit in a second. But what's the result of a woman living a kindly and respectful life with her husband? Look again at 1 Peter 3.1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that if some do not obey the word. And so here in 1 Peter, we've seen the word the word, the word, that's confusing to follow. We've seen that pop up like four times in this book and it, it's synonymous with the gospel, with believing what God has spoken. And so here we see, um, I'm gonna start over, likewise wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they do not believe the gospel, they may be one without a word 
by the respectful conduct of their wives. You see, the churches Peter is writing to, we saw this in the first week when we opened the book, he's writing to churches who are facing persecution from unbelievers all around them in all areas of life. And one of the areas where this tension is brewing is in homes where wives are believers and husbands were unbelievers. And in the same way, so we've seen three weeks now that begin with the phrase, be subject to, be subject to, be subject to. And then we get to husbands and it says, likewise. So this theme of subjection is flowing all over to all of our human experience. And in the same way Peter told us to submit ourselves to authorities, that men might see the gospel. In the same way as we saw last time we met, that Peter says we should admit to suffering, that men might see the gospel. Here Peter says godly women should still submit to their unbelieving husbands that they might see the gospel. You see, it's not merely that God cares about your actions, but it's if the wife is the helper, that's what Eve was made for in the garden. Eve was made to be the helper of Adam. The greatest way she could help her family is to live in such a way that the gospel is made visible in her conduct and in her attitude. Look at what Paul says in Corinthians 7, verses 14 through 16. He says this, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Verse 16, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And so when it says, just to clarify, that the 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 wife makes holy the husband, that doesn't mean she saves him. And we see that because later on it says, how do you know if you're going to save him? Just merely being married to a Christian does not make you a Christian. But what it does do is it does present you in near proximity to the saving message of Jesus Christ. You see, God's ideal design is that believers marry believers. But because of evangelism, and this is good news, it's not uncommon for one member of an unbelieving couple to be converted and see the beauty of Jesus before the other member of the couple. It's also unfortunately all too common that believers will marry unbelievers, and yet, despite this unequal yokage, be it from someone being converted inside of marriage or for two marrying together, being one married and one not married, while there's no guarantee it will work out this way, God here is privileging the believer inside of marriage as a means to help save the unbelieving spouse. Ladies, the merit of your effectiveness, the merit of your ability to contribute, to find identity, to matter, is in your ability, in this case, to serve your husband, be it a believer or an unbeliever with the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's truly effective because that affects more than what we eat or what we see or what we wear. It affects who we are for all eternity. And the good news about this is, is I know that there are many women in many places who have, who have endured for many years an unbelieving husband. And it's hard because you have different realities and I would bet that in this room, there are some of you who might encounter that same trial later in life. But this news is still for you. I know three women at Sovereign Hope, which is the church we're from, who prayed and pleaded 
and submitted to their unbelieving husband for decades, praying that they would come to church, asking for prayer that their husbands would come to church. And now by God's grace and by their persistent application of this passage, their husbands are believers. Their husbands are members at our church. Their husbands lead their family and serve their kids and love their wives because of the witness of their wives in humbly, respectfully, persevering in the gospel. This is true effectiveness in life. This is a life which really matters. Gauge your duty, gauge your responsibility, gauge your identity on the weight of this gospel and everything else will fall into place. Secondly, that's the first hope, the hope to be effective. We see the hope to be accepted. Let's look at 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing that you wear. So this is an aside. I'm not on my notes. This is where I get off track. Uh, so, I re- so the magazine Cosmo, you guys heard of that? It's like a fashion magazine. So I was, I was looking at the Greek here, and it says Cosmos. And did you know that cosmos in Greek is just, it's like the, the decorum of everything. That's why there's the cosmos. Like the outer space is the cosmos, but it's also a term they use in that culture for beauty. Uh, Do you ever wonder why cosmos is called cosmo? I thought it was maybe cosmopolitan. Maybe it is. But also it could be aptly fitted for the word beauty. And it's a beauty magazine. Notes. <laughs> um, anyway, let's go back better to notes. Let's go to the Bible. Um, So, uh, goodness, where am I? Uh, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, again, I want to remind us here that Paul is talking to wives and he's talking to women. And while he's talking to those people, that doesn't mean that those are the only people who wrestle with these issues. Issues of acceptance and identity are not female issues. They are human issues. But females here are being spoken to. And I think it's fair to say that in general, females are more prone to these things in different ways than males. For instance, I just spent five days in beautiful San Diego with my lovely wife celebrating our five-year anniversary. And my wife's not a big shopper, which I love, uh, but we're in San Diego. We're like a short trolley ride away from this huge thing called Fashion Valley Mall. And my wife wants to go shopping. And so we go and we get to Fashion Valley Mall and there are stores upon stores upon myriads upon myriads. And there is one set of bathrooms and it was on the opposite end of where we were. So we walked the entire length of this mall on the top floor to get there, on the bottom floor to get back, and we see all of these stores. And I realize the majority of these stores that I'm seeing, they don't even have men's clothes. It's just women's clothes. And then when we did find a store with men's clothes, you had to first walk through three levels of jewelry and then like four miles of women's underwear to a small dimly lit room in the back where they're selling like in a cardboard box the clothes from last year's like Thanksgiving sale or something. And what this was showing is that culture's real estate, even in our fashion industry, affirms God's diagnosis here that women are prone to favor external adornment. It's the market. It's where the money's at. Why? Why is that? I've seen TV shows trying to decipher why it is that throughout the ages, women have done crazy things to their body in the name of beauty. 
Why is it that women braid their hair? Why is it that my two-year-old daughter, who is bald still, is doing things with her non-existent hair already that my son, who had hair, never did? The putting on of jewelry, the spending time picking out your clothes. When I tell my daughter something's beautiful, she just does this. <laughs> my son doesn't do that, mainly because I don't call my son beautiful. Um, but maybe if I did, he probably wouldn't do that still. So why is this? It's because there's a common trend in our broken humanity to address the areas which others can see while ignoring areas which truly matter. Look again at 1 Peter 3, 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. So at first blush here, we see the line that every Disney movie has told us since we've been born. Beauty is on the inside. I've heard many women say to their daughters, that woman's ugly on the outside, but beautiful on the inside. Or vice versa, they say, you are beautiful or don't be beautiful on the outside and ugly on the inside. I need to work on this before I insult my daughter at some point in my life. But we've heard that, right? Beauty's on the inside. The question is, if you are looking to these things to get acceptance, if you're looking to these things to find identity, if you're looking to these things to find worth, what makes that inner person beautiful? Wouldn't we want to be sure of that? Wouldn't we want to know what is it that brings that identity? Is the solution to this then for all women to just stop braiding their hair, throw out their makeup and burn their, their jewelry and just cry out like, I know there's this, one of the ladies on The Voice, who's the lady on The Voice who doesn't wear makeup now? My wife loves The Voice. What? Alicia Keys. She's doing this, leading this trend where they don't wear makeup and you have to accept them as they are. Is that the solution? To say, don't accept me as I look, accept me as I am. Is that what makes us beautiful? This is where we need to note the words that are being used here. Because in this passage, we saw the phrase, the imperishable beauty of the gentle and quiet spirit, which in the eyes of God is very precious. And actually, in contrast to the words describing gold jewelry, that word very precious means very costly very expensive. The things we tr you try to adorn yourself with and aspects of beauty is found here in the eyes of God. How do you get that? And what does that have to do with the inner person of your heart? Well, first we need to remember that we're reading a letter and Peter has used this word imperishable before. Look back just a page ago, 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Ladies, you will receive true acceptance, true identity, true worth, 
Only when you are accepted by the God who created you and you will only receive the imperishable acceptance of God through the faith you have in Jesus Christ. That's where acceptance comes from. You see, you're beautiful not because the inner, per- the inner person inside you is real. You're beautiful because at your heart's core, the inner person has been redeemed if you are in Jesus Christ. That's the beauty. That's the adornment. That's the identity. And this is convicting for me as I was looking at this yesterday morning as a husband because uh, how often is it, I tell my wife she's beautiful all the time. It's very common for me to do that. But how common is it for me to compliment things which flow from her adornment in Christ? That was a really gracious thing you did to our kids. I was really honored by the way you forgave me for being a bonehead. When we talked about the application of the sermon the other week, I was, really he- I was really helped by what you took away from scripture there. I'm already painting a reality where I'm showing my wife that what really matters is the adornment on the outside, neglecting that which is on the inside. And the worst thing that could happen for me in terms of my relationship with my wife is that she would be found attractive to me but distasteful in the eyes of God. What am I doing to promote the beauty that makes her very precious in the eyes of God? See, ladies, your zeal for acceptance, be it in a man, a career, or in fashion, will only be met when you are found very pleasing to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other way to salvation. There is no other way to satisfaction. There is no other way to be very pleasing. It's not that you no longer say, accept me as I look, nor when you say, accept me as I am, but instead when you approach God and you say, accept me as you accepted Christ. Christ bore my sin. Christ bore my failings. He became my weakness, and I stand in him chosen and precious before God. Where does that sift in your own heart? Where does that sift in your own priorities and your time throughout the week? And you see, in the last verse to wives, we see the combination of these two things. We see the combination of effectiveness and the combination of acceptance. And we see this in 1 Peter 3, verse 6. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, or excuse me, I'm going to go back to verse 5 and read. Verse 5 is not up there, but you need it. It's in the middle of a thought here. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. By submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. You see, the adornment these women had, the beauty that they had, comes from them faithfully trusting the God who had fixed their life on the shoulders of Christ Jesus. And the thing that Peter says here is that if you do this, you will fear nothing. To the woman in a relationship with a man who doesn't love Jesus, you will fear nothing. To the woman who's worried that they don't look the way culture looks, you will fear nothing. To the woman who's scared about stepping out in the gospel, you will fear nothing because you already have everything in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is true empowerment. Men, your turn. Here we go. The two hopes you face in this passage are the hopes to be guided and the hopes to be helped. Well, much shorter than the ladies in terms of real estate here, we're just going to be looking at one verse that doesn't mean that this is easier or less important than anything else we've looked at. And so here's the verse we're going to look at together. Likewise, husbands, 
Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you, actually a better word is co-heirs with you in the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So men are told to do two things in this passage. One, live with your wives in an understanding way. And two, show them honor. And it's easier for us to understand the honor component. But what does he mean when it says live with your wives in an understanding way? What Peter is saying here is that you must understand everything that was just said to the wives. It's a cumulative exam that we face. What we just talked about, the weight of identity, the centrality of the gospel, the hope and joy we get in being accepted through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that matters to you. You must believe that. You must live likewise in accordance to that. The importance of the weight of the gospel for the wife must shape the culture you create as a husband. It must influence your love and your actions. And this is the first hope. Men, we hope to be guided. We really do. As much as men are loners, we hope to be guided by something. And you already have in your life some sort of guiding influence. What is it? What's that guiding influence that shapes why you're studying what you're studying, why you're pursuing who you're pursuing, and why you're loving the way you're loving? And I ask why, because we all want that. Just like how women want to feel the need to be effective, we feel the need to to meet some sort of standard of masculinity. We want to be guided by the cultural, like there's the blog, The Art of Manliness, and I go there for fun sometimes, and I want to see, how does my life match up to this? Does my library look like this library? Does my closet look like this closet? We want to meet the demands of what it means to be a man according to culture. Or maybe for you, that object of masculinity was your dad or your grandpa. And we're all driven by some sort of principle like this. But what Peter is talking about here is being guided by the weight of the gospel in everything surrounding your dating and marriage life. You see, Christ gives us a framework for romance. We don't need to be Christian and then go somewhere else to discover what it is that guides us, what it is that makes us true men, or what it is that makes us lovers. Christ gives us all of that in the gospel. And it starts with this. Do you see as first importance in your spouse the growth and understanding of the gospel which makes them precious to God? Is that a first importance when you think about loving and serving? That hope you have in marriage is of first importance. Am I helping them to love Jesus. Are you smitten only with the external person with no regard for the health or helpfulness of the hidden person? Because you need that help, men. You need a woman who is adorned with a deep trust in Jesus Christ. Because I can tell you this, in my marriage, the most intimate moment I've had with my wife has had nothing to do with sex. The most intimate and honoring moment I had, the moment when I felt most loved by my wife was at 12 o'clock at night when I had just confessed to her the first time I had ever looked at porn in our marriage. And in that moment, when I felt shameful, I felt dirty, I felt like I cheated on her, she began to preach the gospel to me. In stunning clarity and in great grace, And though I had acted out of a desire for more sex, what I needed that night was not more lingerie or sex or spice in our bed. What I needed was the truth of the gospel to be proclaimed to me by the wife who truly loved me. 
that I am loved, that I'm forgiven, that I am accepted, that I'm satisfied because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. The shame I felt was infinitely expounded before God. I felt dirty before my wife, but I would have felt much more dirty before God. And Sarah says that that shame was instantly put on Christ when he died for you. That's the message she spoke to me. And that's the message I want to speak back to her. That's the message I want to leave with her to make her feel loved. That's what is meant by Paul when he says in Ephesians 5, 25 through 28, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Men, if you are not prepared to give away the gospel as the guiding principle of your marriage, you are not prepared to give away a ring. Because if you cannot believe and cherish the gospel, you don't know what's best for you, and you certainly can't know what is best for your wife. And lastly, men, this is the thing that stands at the opposite of much of what we think about masculinity, is that we actually have a hope to be helped. We all think we're all loners who like to do things on our own and can get it done, but that's in essence why we, look, why we desire relationships. We want to have help. We want to have contentment. We want to find partnership. We want to find cooperation, but no woman will ever give you the ultimate help that you need. And even in the best Christian marriage, our wives may preach to us Christ and remind us of the gospel, but it is only Christ who can change our lives. My wife can plead with me day after day after day after day, but unless Christ changes my heart, I have no hope. And I want you to look at the stunning threat that God gives us in 1 Peter 1 verse 7. Men, I want you to hear this. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are co-heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, love your wives well so that your prayers may not be hindered. The biggest scandal of this text is that it sounds terrifying to so few men. What God is saying here is that if you do not love your wife through Christ, if you are not concerned about loving her to the foot of the cross, of showering her in the gospel, of adorning her with a faithful trust in Jesus Christ, of laying down yourself to serve her ultimate good, God will not listen to you. God will turn his back to you. God will give you a mute ear. Because there is nothing more important to God than our ability to see the importance of the gospel in our life and in those next to us. And our lack of awareness to be so obtuse to the needs and love of our wife shows not only do we not care about them, but we don't care about ourselves. So women, as you look for a man, look for one who reads this threat and it causes his heart to tremble. 
is the man you dream about, the man you're already pursuing, or the man you're married to, is he dependent upon the hope and communion he gets from God with prayer? Does he realize his epic inability without the grace of God in his life? This is a question. I just wrote this in my margin uh, moments before I preached, and I hate it because it's applicable to my own life. What would make me more distraught? If I was told I could never watch football again, or if I was told that God would never hear my prayers? Where is that at in your own life? We need the grace of God. We need his mercy to change. We need his spirit to come to life. So men, pray for that. Pray that God would best serve your wife later by giving you an intense desire for fellowship with him now. Pray that God would drench your heart in the kerosene of affection and apply a match that burns bright with passion for him, seeing that your sin became Christ's sin and Christ's righteousness became your righteousness, that you have been made new and clean and pure and set apart, brought out of death and brought into life, brought out of darkness and into sight, brought out of death and into a life of joy. That's the greatest affection you can give away. That's the greatest husband. That's the greatest father. That's the greatest boyfriend. That's the greatest man. You see, we all have hope. And we have placed it in thousands of things, but let's not be deceived. In our singleness or in our relationship, the only way you will find true satisfaction is if it's accompanied by and cemented on the hope of Jesus Christ. To you in here, Men and women, do you want to apply this text to your life? Do you want to see the joy of the gospel leading the joy of your relationships? Or are you hoping that your relationship magically becomes the joy of the gospel because it will never happen? The gospel must come first. And here's the thing. The majority of you in here are still single. And if as a group... GCF, or as a church, Sovereign Hope, and the young people across the globe, if they hear this message in advance and they commit themselves to being that wife and being that husband, in our relationships, culture will see more than what they claim to see in Christian homes. They'll see more than what they twist stats to say is a culture of divorce as rampant inside the church as it is outside the church. And what they will see instead are two individuals, male and female, celebrating, mirroring, and enjoying the love of each other as a shadow of the love of Christ. Christ, giving it away evangelistically for all to see and one of the most compelling centerpieces of love and affection the world has ever known. You in your relationship, when based on the gospel of Jesus Christ, become one of the most powerful tools for evangelism the world has ever seized because it lets people see what true love is. Service and love to the cause of a greater good, seasoned with grace and ever-present forgiveness. By God's grace, the great gift of marriage he's given us is designed to mirror and promote the even greater gift of salvation that he's given us. Put it on now. Pray for it now. If your hope is tied up ultimately in an end outside of Jesus, all of your hopes will fail. 
But if Christ becomes the centerpiece of your hope, the rest of our hopes will find a marvelous end. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that you have given us um, in, in all of our hearts, you've wired us for affection. That doesn't mean that all of us should get married or we will get married, but it does mean that in our hearts, you've given us this weird emotion of love. And at the peak love we ever experience in our own hearts or with uh, our spouse, the peak moment of that love, the most intimate setting a human could ever be in is a drop compared to the ocean of love you've given us in Jesus Christ. Lord, make us lovers of Christ before lovers of our spouses. Make us desperate for your mercy and involvement before we become desperate for mere companionship. Enrich our desires for partnership. Enrich our effectiveness. Enrich our acceptance, not through the effort man tells us to put into relationships, but through the gospel you've told us to infuse in our relationships. Lord, set this group apart in how we pursue one another because we have a different hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.